Hello, friends. Welcome once again to the Perfect Bomb Podcast. This is a podcast all about anything and everything comic books and comics related, brought to you by the Panel Jumper and Comics Dungeon. My name is Ben. With me, as always, is Chris Casso. Hello. Nicole Lamb. Hello. And Cole Hornaday. Get off my lawn. <laughs> How's everybody doing this fine evening? <laughs> doing good still. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I'm sorry. Where are we? Uh, apparently, Cole has turned into an ang- angry old man. Turned into? <laughs> <laughs> or at least I'm not the one who went there. <laughs> you were, yeah, but you set me up. So where else was I gonna go? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. All, All right. right. Long. <laughs> and scene. Thank this you, is <laughs> this is Seattle. Nobody has a lawn. This is true. Yeah. yeah. You have a rock garden, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Get beauty off bark. my yeah. get off my overdeveloped property. <laughs> get off my beauty bark. All right. So um, this episode, which is episode one hundred and ninety-five, good lord, dun, we've dun, been dun. coming at you for so many different weeks, is uh, hitting your earballs on November fifth, twenty eighteen. Um, last weekend was the very first uh, Indigenous Comic Con at the uh, Isleta Resort and Casino in Albuquerque, New York, uh, Albuquerque, Albuquerque, New Mexico. And at it was a uh, hopefully I didn't read a follow up to this because this article is kind of old, but it was still interesting uh, to me. Uh, Navajo artist Sean Bayali, and I hope I'm uh, pronouncing that right, was hoping to premiere a a new um, indigenous uh, superhero called Isla the Monster Killer or the Monster Slayer. Pardon me, and. Um, it's a book that was going to be taking place in a post-apocalyptic world in the Southwest. And if you've ever driven through the Southwest, there's not a long ways to go <laughs> before you hit a post-apocalyptic landscape. Well, and I think he basically, if I remember from what I read there, he basically said we're already living in it as yeah. far as our people are concerned. That's the thing so, about, yeah. yeah, that's the thing about that area in specifically. Cause like He grew up there and... You go, you know, around the corner and it's a desert wasteland Mm -hmm. and the uh, indigenous people who live there live there and are successful living there. And so his his point is that in a post-apocalyptic world, instead of indigenous people being like a remnant of the past, they're going to be the ones leading the way for the future because Mm -hmm. they're going to be the ones who know how to survive in this landscape. Mm And there's not a lot of there's not a lot of um, uh, comic books out there that have indigenous uh, main characters, aren't there? Not too many, but there has been a, a past few years, at least, a little bit more of a push for more comic creators to to, uh, to be represented in publications. There's a few anthologies that feature Native American creators. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I remember reading an article about a Native American comic book store that only stocks nothing but books by Native creators. Yeah, mm. sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah. Well, I applaud what this project is about. I wish it was more original. Because even though it's about a, a female um, superhero type figure, everything else about it looks like the work of Tim Truman. It all looks like Shaman and, and um, our Scout and Scout War Shaman. Same setting. Um, even the the only the uh, uh, Scout is um, 
Apache and this is a Navajo story. Is that right? But yeah. they but they also the the premise of of Scout is that the monsters of that culture, that nation's folklore, have returned and taken over political figures in a post-apocalyptic reality. Mm. It, I was the reading it going, you know, this is great, but I wish you, I mean, I wish you'd pay, uh, uh, pay some uh, homage to uh, the work that's come before that it's, you're borrowing it from. Now, I, I don't know that Tim Truman is, is, has a Native American background, but he sure explored it a lot through both his series back in the 80s and into the 90s. And actually, Scout is coming back. He kick-started um, a new series that's supposed to be coming out next year. Um, and even stylistically, this artist seems to be borrowing pretty heavily from from uh, Tim Truman. So that's the only quibble I have. Um, and uh, honestly, this fellow's signature actually looks like <laughs> Tim Truman's as well. Really? A huge Tim Truman really? fan. <laughs> Could be Tim Truman fans because I think yeah. in the article too he said uh, no water no electricity all they had were comics yeah so it's it's yeah chances but, are he's got a bunch of Tim but Truman at the same that. time I you know me I'm a big um, I'm a big proponent of of native peoples and people of color telling stories from their culture as opposed to letting white people do it and you yeah. know Tim Truman did tell like I said I don't know if he's if he's from a particular nation. Um, but uh, he, it's preferable to me that someone of that culture tells stories about their culture. And it can so. be pretty hard, especially if you're working either within an analog or a derivative or right. something like that. Or sure. You're trying to do a superhero. Right. Um, it really is an uphill battle because while you want to have that representation, you want to try to bring the people in. Absolutely. And a lot of times people will say, well, no, I'll just go read Spider-Man or no, I'll just I go read I almost didn't want to say anything, but I was like reading like the article. I'm like, oh, jeez. No. Yeah. But that's, it's, a, it's a challenge. I mean, yeah. one, it's hard to get into the industry and hard to get your work out there. But then when you're also trying to do a superhero story, I find that it makes it even more challenging because mm -hmm. you have to sell people on on a character that they don't have any history exactly. with they don't have sure. nostalgia with um and it just makes it harder yep. yeah to get your stories yep. out there and he's coming into a point in the industry where there's a flood of that exact same thing yeah because yeah. uh there's yeah. another uh humanoids announced they're doing a whole new superhero universe just like oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do we I, need that humanoids i don't know yeah it, it just always boggles my brain when some uh when uh, a publisher tries to come up with their with a superhero universe from scratch um because there's no scratch to be had anymore yeah um, I, I was just having a conversation with one of my customers at corner and they were saying that we we're talking about valiant and valiant in particular they right. say you know Think about Captain America and a quote that he said. Now think about something Bloodshot has said that's memorable to you. You know, it's like it makes it, it puts it into the context of like, it's Hi, hard. I'm Bloodshot. Hey, I can regenerate. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, that's like, I, I don't remember. know. Yeah, well, I've, I, I've wanted to do a panel jumper or at least do some piece on the summer of dead universes because there was, I can't remember what summer it was, but Marvel introduced the new universe. Dark Horse had their uh, world's best comics they tried to bring it back recently yeah uh, and then malibu had their universe um and uh there were there's within the span of like three or four years a bunch of other independent uh, and you know established companies tried to create a new universe from well you know what they thought was whole cloth and they didn't i mean the most uninspired one was the ultraverse that was just dreck um there's nothing there's nothing memorable about it other than marvel bought uh, Malibu's color digital, uh, their, their color uh, printing process that they patented. And they absorbed that company and they absorbed those characters who are technically, you know, 
Prime and the Ultra Force, and they're all yeah. sludge. They're all technically part of the Marvel Universe, but they're gone now. Yep. They they were absorbed, and they're absorbed like a, you know, a vestigial limb in the womb. <laughs> or something. So, <laughs> conjoined twin. Yeah. Uh, so absorbed. She, yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> did, did, did you have more to add, Chris? No. Was, oh, okay. Yeah, no. Yeah. yeah. Just wanted to wrap this up. If yeah. you're looking gotcha. for art by Sean Bayali, you, uh, you can find it at his uh, his Facebook, um, which is art by Sean Bayali, art of Sean Bayali, where you can find prints of Isla the Monster Slayer. I don't know if he got the book finished for the con, which happened last weekend, but he was hoping to have a preview. But if it still interests you, if that kind of thing still interests you, uh, seek it out, check it out, look for new voices in the comics world. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. All right. Um, Batman, as we move on to the big behemoth that is DC, Batman Mask of the Phantasm is returning to theaters for one night only. Um, On November 12th, 500 theaters are participating across the United States. I have not seen this. Is it worth watching in the theater? I actually saw it in the theater when it came out. My dad and I went and saw it. Yeah. I I remember, does it say on the article when it was originally released? It does. 1993. Yeah. I was, uh, I think I was home from graduate school with the family and uh, I was heading out the door and mom said, where are you, where are you going? I'm like, I'm going to go see a new Batman cartoon movie. <laughs> and dad was standing there like, and he's looking at me all kind of hangdog. And I remember my mom looking at my dad and she said, do you want to go with him, Dick? And dad like <laughs> nodded like a puppy. It was weird. And dad and I went and saw this, uh, Batman cartoon. Your dad is sometimes just really like hot for the comic scene. Oh like, yeah, he, he just, is. Like, he just is one of like the Elf Quest. He's just yeah. oh, I'm gonna read yeah, this the weird pixies. fairy. Yeah. The he pixie. Loved the pixie books. Yep. He and then it's just books. one of those like deer in the headlights. Like, but I want to go see Batman. <laughs> That's exactly how I remember That's it cute. too. So when they know when they announced that they were re-releasing, I'm like, oh, I wonder if I can get Dad to go with me. Hey. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that'd be yeah. nice. Yeah, that'd be. I cute. was 11 when I went and saw that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been a, it's been uh, 25 years yep. since 1993, which sounds weird <laughs> because right, I remember right. 1993 really well. But yeah, it's 25 you years. Guess what the quiz time's gonna be about? <laughs> mm. But I, I, I own a copy of it too. It's, it's um, it holds up. You know, it's 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 from that the amazing era of Batman the animated series that was ahead of its time. Yeah, mm-hmm. still ahead of its time. Yeah. <laughs> so if you if you live in the Seattle area, it will be playing at the AMC. Pacific Place 11, uh, the Regal Thornton Place 14 uh, in Northgate, and Lincoln Square Cinema in Bellevue. But uh, yeah, it is it is a one-day-only event uh, with screenings at 2 and 7. Monday's not the worst day. Leanne's trapped. Oh, Leanne. Yeah, the one person who would want to see this the most. <laughs> the Leanna Raptor now. Yeah. But uh, right. yeah, the and the it's kind of neat. You could choose your seats. Um, I I just did the same thing through Fathom with the Transformer uh, 1986 movie release, mm-hmm. and uh, I got us the wrong seats by accident. <laughs> but uh, if I was paying attention, it would have been great. Yeah. So, hey, the movie was fantastic. I had a go. great time. There you go. How did you get the wrong seats? You know, it was an overhead look. And mm-hmm. and I I view that as if yeah so if it's overhead, the bottom of the page mm-hmm. should be the, uh, the the top of oh, the seats. I see. And it was inverted. We were like in the second row. We were in so the second how packed was it? Not too packed. 
So because I'm like, fair, fairly yeah, busy. because yeah, I have, I've, I've bought them online and mm-hmm. I've, you know, and I've picked them out and then I've gone into the auditorium and I'm like, meh, and I've gone and sat where I want to sit. <laughs> yeah. If it's not too packed. Yeah, if it's not too packed. It, you could probably yeah. do that. It was a good amount of people, but yeah, there were two screenings at the same time. So yeah. I think it spread it out a bit. Yeah. Yeah. We Just had a lot, a lot of customers who were there that night too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was this yeah. the one with the Orson Welles? Yeah. 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 So Last good. roll before he yeah. died. Yep. That's right. Yeah. I remember watching that in the theaters. You got in 1986. <laughs> All right. Uh, she and the Princess of Power will be coming to Netflix on November 16th. I thought this might have been uh, appealing to you, Nicole. I, I want her outfit. I feel yeah. like I could do anything because you got like a skirt thing, like a skirt and 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 a skirt, a skirt and shorts. A skirt? Is skirt. that a word that you just oh. made up? Or yeah. Is that a thing? No, that's a thing. It's a real okay, thing. Okay. If you're a 90s girl, you understand that that was a thing. They made shorts. Wow. And they sewed them into skirts so girls could still be. Skirty. Sporty. I, I think the coffee's wearing Sporty. off now. Oh. Um, so, yeah, it seems like a, it's a younger gen. A, a gen Shira. Seriously, it's not going well, guys. Um, yeah, and it looks great. pretty You're It looks pretty great. cute. Yeah, it looks really cute. Yeah. Her um, her voice is probably going to grate on me, though. So I hope I hope it's not as... Grady. Yeah. yeah. Now, I... I what I linked to in the show notes was just a, a YouTube uh, trailer, and it doesn't say if it's going to be like a series or if it's going to yeah. be like a, a movie or what it's, is it? It's supposed to be a TV show, and I think the episodes all release on November 16th. Like Netflix does. Yeah. Okay. So DreamWorks. No, uh, no sorry. Yeah, I don't know oh, okay. about that. But DreamWorks is doing did the Voltron stuff, so it's going to yeah. be good. It's going to be good. Yeah, it's, it's good. just it's just that voice acting that I'm like, ooh, it's <laughs> going to be hard to listen to Shiro. That's not going to work very well. Mm. But otherwise, I like the animation and the new design. I think it's it's good to have something freshen up but still, yeah. be, st- still be familiar enough. It'll just fall on how good Hordak looks. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, give me some of that Hordak. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the I love the evil the evil squad. Yeah, yeah. They had so much personality. All right. Um, <laughs> Daredevil got a review recently that Cole you posted a link to on I the did. Facebook page. I did. And it was a nasty, nasty <laughs> review that I am I'm I'm concerned has much founding in reality. Mm. Well, the thing is, um, Wilson Fisk uh, is coming back for Daredevil season three um, because it's that was you know uh, uh, that was my favorite character yep. from the first season, yep. and I thought the show was made better uh, by Vincent D'Onofrio's performance. And so I wrote in the show notes, "Do you want me to watch season three? Because that's how you get me to watch season three is you put Wilson Fisk in it." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, so let's hope it stands up. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The review was uh, uh, single-handedly pretty nasty and biased. Um, but there's no getting past the fact that we all are a little bit disappointed in the arc of the Netflix Marvel shows, and that yeah. that, that s- several of them, many of them, started out. Uh, hot and fast and and were fresh and, and vivid and then you know we got Iron Fist and things started to spiral then we got the Defenders and I've been underwhelmed with the Marvel series since the initial uh, heat of them. Iron Fist has already been canceled yeah is that yeah. right so we don't season know season two is is actually an improvement of, I've been watching it of Iron Fist uh-huh. like he can fight now honestly I didn't realize that <laughs> that had come out um, yet. he smiles sometimes um, smiles wow he's yeah. been taking acting classes he like oh. helps people now I didn't I mean I enjoyed Luke Cage 
the second season. Um, I don't know. They just seem to not be able to step up from the initial introduction. And I think it has to do with world building for me is that I love setups and it's, we've talked about it before, but uh, I love the setup to a story, but um, where it goes from there doesn't always meet that expectation for me. And I think Defenders was the worst. I just was so bored. And yeah. and so was Iron Fist. I was terribly, terribly bored. I didn't even finish the, watching yeah. the first season. The pacing on almost every single one of them. I think Daredevil is the strongest. Yeah. But I think the pacing has fallen flat. And in recent years, seeing the Marvel un- Cinematic Universe right. and how quickly they've been able to introduce characters and just get you going, right. you know, on the story train. Um the Netflix Marvel should have done that as well um, because we just had to go on and on and on. It took forever to people for people to get like costumes mm-hmm. and stuff like that. You just need move them, move them faster. You I know? just don't care about these people anymore. I, I mean, as a rule, uh, or excuse me, in general, I, th- there's, there's done a spark. There's no connection within these characters. They feel flat. They feel like comic book characters. It's because they need friendship. <laughs> uh, I'm in agreement with you. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Friendship would make all the difference. Well, you know, and what does that do? That makes those characters vulnerable, yeah. you know? Well, and it makes connections. It, like, shows, And connections you know, make you vulnerable, Nicole. Luke Cage has lots of connections. They're Which just is in the why form that, of lady connections. You're right. Hey. That one works a hey. little bit better for me. I, like, hey. I did like the second season of Luke hey. Cage. I'll have to watch the second season. So. I haven't. Yeah, I haven't seen it. it either. I recommend. It's 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 interesting. I still enjoyed it. Um, but you know, the first one had the biggest impact on me. Hmm. Well, so going back to the review on the Daredevil, like yeah. what what was specifically the thing that was so scathing? That I think was so he just said it was boring. Boring, and um, uh, I think there may have been some discussion of how preposterous the connections were. He pointed out dialogue that he thought was cheesy and I'm like oh come on dude well, back the truck up it's, it's a comic book superheroes it's also <laughs> like he came in kind of showing his biases up front right, right. he didn't like, he didn't want to like this show this mm-hmm. is true yeah and that's why I don't hold uh, a great deal of credence to this review yeah. I, I mean I posted it because you know I'm, I'm kind of monitoring where we go with the Marvel TV series but maybe that was not the best example to put out there but it was one of the first ones yeah so. yeah because I don't think the series has actually dropped yet Daredevil no I yeah. think it's no, not yet. end of or season this, rather I think it's like end of this month or something yeah. I think it was actually Coming. dropping pretty quickly yeah so yeah, this guy got uh, this critic got advance yeah he only saw like the first like four or five episodes as well okay, oh, okay. so he All wasn't right. able to see the whole thing I'm, well I would say I'm definitely gonna watch it but hey I'm the guy that, that forgot that the you know Iron Fist season two actually dropped so <laughs> so uh, it's better <laughs> Daredevil uh, Daredevil season three is gonna hit uh, did hit Netflix on October 19th okay <laughs> okay so um, uh, as as this episode drops it is November uh, something or other November 5th. So, um, in a previous uh, episode, we were talking about things that that Neil Gaiman had done better. I can't mm-hmm. remember specifically what we talked about. We thought, hey, maybe we should try to think of other things that Neil Gaiman has done better. Aside from like everything that Neil Gaiman does is great, mm-hmm. um, but uh, let's 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 briefly have a discussion about things that Neil Gaiman did better. Chris, do you got do you have something? So the only thing I could really because. 
I like Neil Gaiman, but I'm not as into him as many and many, many people are. So I've not read like the full <laughs> breadth of his stuff. But um, the, the only thing I could really think of off the top of my head is um, Straczynski, uh, J. Michael Straczynski did a comic series called The Midnight Nation. Mm -hmm. And one of the key points of that is that uh, people can be forgotten and they fall through the cracks of reality and they uh, can't be seen anymore. And so Neverwhere is, I, I'm going to guess, maybe the first thing that really did that idea. Mm -hmm. um, and it's uh, the execution was really solid in that, which if you've never read Neverwhere, I highly recommend it. It's... Uh, the basically um there's an underground london and homeless people and anybody else that just kind of gets ignored and and they can fall through the crack of reality and there's a whole like magical uh medieval kind of at some places mm -hmm. world there there's an angel played by doctor who guy capaldi, capaldi. peter capaldi and yeah. um oh in the movie in the show sorry i should yeah. put that there is a bbc show and it's not like great but i like it I enjoyed it. I've rewatched like it. it recently. Um, it's low budget. It's super, super low budget. But also, um, if you get the DVD set, uh, Gaiman um, actually uh, does commentary on every one of the episodes, yeah, which me. I actually really appreciated. Mm -hmm. um, I just love his voice. Yeah. I love everything about him. So was Neverwhere a comic first or a, a, a novel? A novel. And then there was a comic, and the but I think there was the movie before the comic. And whenever they make a, a adaptation of a game and book into a comic, it's actually boring as heck to me. Mm -hmm. yep. um, I just yeah. do not care. And So yeah. I think the, the TV series actually preceded the novel. Did it? Yeah, because I think he wrote the screenplay for the or the tell the tell play for the series and then it, the novel but but because it's BBC and because it was like pre-streaming platforms and stuff I read the the novel before I actually got my hands on the series mm -hmm. I got my hands on the series like Half Price Books had a blowout that stacks of them and I like yeah um, <laughs> my um, Neil Gaiman did it better is um, uh, I Wicked in the Divine I um, really didn't care for that series. I read the first, uh, excuse me, uh, Wicked and Divine was uh, written by, created by Karen Gillen and Jamie McKelvey, um, published by Image. It's still going on, yep. and yeah. I think it's still pretty pretty popular. I, I, I gave like the first three trades a chance, and, and frankly, I was distracted by the fact that uh, I kept thinking Gaiman did it better. It's, mm -hmm. But what but Gaiman does is give us new gods, you know, pardon the play on Jack Kirby, but he gives us stories about gods that fit our contemporary reality, whereas um, Wicked and the Divine are reincarnations of known god properties. And of course, the most interesting character in Wicked and the Divine is the Lucifer character in the, in the body of a woman. But I also had trouble with Wicked and Divine because it wasn't a consistent pantheon, is that it was like there are gods from all different cultural beliefs and persuasions, including Lucifer. Um, and, I, and I didn't really understand how it was supposed to work together as these beings are reincarnated and they get to live again in the bodies of mere mortals and burn them out like little cinders. But in its defense, American God's not about one exclusive pantheon. It's about everybody just thrown into the American boiling pot. Plus, right. the new. The, and the thing is, in the book, there's not that much about new gods. There's only there's a couple. My comparison was more with Sandman and Sandman. and and okay. the Endless. Oh. Oh. Um, gotcha. uh, 
but you're right. That is a better comparison is, mm -hmm. is American Gods versus, um, because what I love about The Endless is that they are, he tells stories that have this gravitas, this history, but this is supposed to be new stuff. You know, and the and the endless are ancient beings, but they are new to us. They've always been there, but they also have uh, a limited um, mortality. It's mm -hmm. millions of years, but you know, and that's in the in the conclusion of his Sandman stories. You know, um, Morpheus does die and was replaced by his son Daniel, um, and that just messes everything up. But uh, but it also has given him opportunity to go back and, and like tell stories like the overture, the Sandman overture from a couple of years ago, um, which is not one of his better works, but was still intriguing because we can go play in any part of the universe and in any um, portion of time. So um, I still think American Gods is a better story than Wiccan Divine. You're right. It is kind of taking from different cultures. Um, but again, they go up again. I think you were starting to say this as they go up against sort of, the sort of modern iterations of gods that fit uh, our, our modern um, attitudes, media, and commerce, media. and all that. Exactly. Yeah. And he explored that a little bit in um, uh, updated versions of like the, the, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse in Good Omens, where it's mm -hmm. like uh, war, uh, death, um, who are the four horsemen? War, famine, famine death. And instead of famine, it's... I can't remember. I oh, shoot. Good it's replaced by a more modern thing. I'll think of it. Anyway. <laughs> Gluttony. Um, <laughs> um, if, if Gaiman did that, then yes. somebody else also ripped him off. Because remember when D, when we hit the year 2000, DC had the year 2000 books, the Vertigo yes, books. Right. And they, uh, I forget who the writer was, but there was one where the four horsemen show up and we ignore them because we're worse than that now. <laughs> and so the four horsemen go into a bar and they're like, ugh, what do we, what do, we do? And they leave as businessmen with like a whole new like subset of horrible mm -hmm. concepts. So if Gaiman did it over on Omens and it's been done. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, I think it was um, Pestilence is replaced by something else. Uh -huh. Because at the time that he wrote, he and Jerry Purnell wrote Good Omens, um, all the diseases that come with war had supposedly been wiped out, which was this really optimistic perspective because that's not true. <laughs> and now we're dealing with superbugs and um, all kinds of awful things. So. All right. Well, Neil Gaiman, he did it better Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to Book Report, everybody. And Chris Cassell, let's start with you. What do you want to tell us about? So I'm going to tag team. Yeah. And uh, we uh, pick up this book called Ouija, Serial Photographer. And uh, I recalled Ouija from a photography class I had in college. And uh, I know that Nicole likes true crime stuff and all that. So yep. when it came in, I was like, here, get it. Yeah, he just said, this is your jam. And then I looked at it. And I was like, it's my jam. And he was like, yeah, he, photo he takes photographs of uh, crime scenes. And I was like, it is my jam. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm not familiar with this creators. I think they're French. I think they're French. I think so. And um, yeah, it basically just kind of follows like a couple days in the life of Ouija. Yeah. And it just it, it highlighted the fact that uh, if you're not familiar with him, he would show up at crime scenes oftentimes before the cops and he would mm -hmm. reframe the crime scene. Mm -hmm. He would muck about with the evidence yep. really? for, for a better composition. Yep. And everybody <laughs> just kind of let him do it. And he had an inside source of the cops that would call him if there was a heads up. And he had like kids that would lead him to crime sites and mm -hmm. uh he just he had a police scanner in his car 
And uh, but they they did an interesting thing that I really liked, where uh, he's dreaming and he sees himself like at the victim, and the victim's still alive, and he murders the victim to get a better shot. Yep. Hmm. So, uh, it, but and they they humanize him quite a bit. He has relationships with like the people in uh, the local part of town that mm-hmm. he's in, and uh, he wants to get away from this, and he knows it's actually kind of horrible life, but he doesn't stop doing it. Yeah. Um, there's like a really, uh, hard scene where like a woman, uh, whose husband died is calling him a vulture and everything. So you can see it hit him and, uh, yeah, the art style's fantastic. It captures the time period perfectly and, uh, captures his, um, his manic depressiveness as you're going through the book. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it the time frame was in the forties. Yeah. I think Humphrey Bogart time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cause he, he also believes he looks like Humphrey Bogart yes, and he, he finally meets Humphrey Bogart and Bogart's like, yeah, that's nice. Go away. <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, it's an $18 graphic novel. It's relatively quickish read, but it's, it's just, it's engaging. Engaging. The yeah. art is beautiful. It's black and white with gray tones and it's just very, it's a very interesting biopic. I mean, especially I didn't know about Ouija and learning about his life. I immediately was interested in seeing the photography that he did and a quick Google search will get you there too. Mm-hmm. Um, so it did interest me in that way. For those of you who might not want to see any photographs of murdered people, the nice thing is the book omits that. There's a different printing, uh, European printing that has some of the photos. Hmm. But yeah, they mention in here that they're like, well, first of all, you can find them in half a second with the internet. Yeah. Second of all, the paper quality reproduction wouldn't do them justice. And third of all, uh, this is a graphic novel and the story exists inside the text and drawings. Mm-hmm. Just like, mm, yeah, I like yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a hardworking guy. He reminded me of like Jack Kirby in the way of just being like tenacious and being from from these streets and being of poverty growing up and wanting, you know, something better. And and also just being like he's a very assertive person. Like he 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 unfortunately will bully his way into situations, which isn't necessarily now lining up with Kirby. But there's there's a great scene where there's a uh, corpse found in the trunk uh, that they fished out of the river. (laughs) And he's just like, well, how many times did the guy stabbed? And they're just kind of like, what? And and uh, the cops don't want to touch the body yet. Yeah. And he's just like, well, no, why don't you hold this over here and I'm going to count the stab wounds. <laughs> and he's counting the stab wounds and like both the cops are getting ready to puke. Yep. Um, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. We should actually mention the creators. I skipped that because I'm going to butcher it. Um, Max de Rodriguez and Water Maner. Maner. Better you than me. Sure. Um, so, yeah. It's a great book. Highly recommend it. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's um, whimsical enough in art style that it's not necessarily gruesome. Um, And it is interesting to see this as a timepiece and to learn about um, somebody and their life. And uh, yeah, he has, he has friendships and uh, Mm. different relationships. And so it's something that you can actually get a connection to this guy. Yep. You know? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, Ouija, thank you both. W-E-E-G-E-E. Because he wanted people to think he was a Ouija board. Yep. Yeah, they used to call him Ouija board. Ah, I get it. Yep. All right. Uh, Cole Hornaday, what do you got for us? Um, Well, Chris is going to tag team with me this time. Tag team. Um, So uh, a couple uh, uh, weeks back, uh, 
Let me back it up here. Uh, the, the book we're going to review is The Joe Schuster Story by Julian Veloge and uh, Thomas Compey. So a couple of weeks back, uh, Chris got a copy in the store. and he I think he'd read, uh, I'm going to speak for you like you're not here. He'd read like 10 pages and he said, this is a brilliant book. Get it now. It's great. I haven't read it yet. Trust me. It's been months. <laughs> and it's been months and it's still true. There yeah. you go. Yeah, no. This is uh, uh, the, this is the story of both. It's more the story of, of Joe Schuster, the the gentleman who drew the and uh, co-creator who drew Superman. Uh, but it's also very much the story of, of Jerry Siegel as well. Um, and it's framed with uh, uh, if you kind of are familiar with the story of these two gentlemen who created Superman, they got screwed really, really bad. And uh, they both, uh, in the twilight of their lives, after uh, spending thousands and thousands of dollars on lawsuits uh, trying to um, get the the corrupt publishers at uh, DC to give them um, what they deserved. They they got stipends. They, they, they lived comfortably in the twilight of their lives, but up to that point in time, it was pretty miserable. But this is the story. This is the whole story. Childhood this is from, through. Yeah, childhood through all the way to the end. Um, and it ends on an upbeat note. It's exhaustively researched and beautifully, beautifully drawn. On. They give you a lot of great notes in the back yeah. for some of that research. Yeah. Um, what I love about the, I've read uh, numerous stories on the history of DC Comics and the history of Superman um, because there's the there's the DC propaganda company line of the story that they wanted you to know, and they didn't want you to know the story of how badly these guys got uh, left on the, uh, on the curb. There's a lot of mythology about how they got screwed over that is actually uh, clarified and set straight in this. Like I'd always been, uh, I think it was Harlan Ellison and said in a Playboy article that when the musical It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman open on Broadway, um, neither Jerry Siegel nor Joe Schuster could even afford to uh, get a ticket. Um, that's not true. They were actually invited to the opening. Uh, but still, they didn't see any money that from the radio serial, from the movie serials, on to the, uh, on to the, uh, the Christopher uh, Reeve movie. They didn't see any of that money, um, and they fought for it and fought for it. What I appreciate from this book it gives a really good face to the people screwing them over yes um, well yeah you get an understanding of like this i mean this is a criminal organization there's the 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 the, the print industry was run by the mob uh-huh. yeah and there's the so I, it's that culture it's been a little while i can't remember exactly but there's the one guy who took the fall for everybody yes he's just like yeah you're all gonna give me a raise and everything when i get out of here i'm fine they show him just reclining in jail yeah. it's like this is great yeah so um the original <laughs> publisher of donafeld uh uh they had that porn mag magazines and this guy took the fall for being the publisher of the porn magazine spent how many years in jail and they just gave him a, yeah it was actually right there You're right on the yeah. page and so he's he's he just the guy would just go in and sleep in his office and he would be like you know co-editor and do nothing um this uh uh is is a story that really needed to be told, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a dense read, but it's a good read. Um, it, it gives you a lot of perspective. But what I love most is like you you really get in on the ground floor of how these fellas, how these young men, these two kids from um, Ohio. Um, uh, came up with this idea. They really were just sort of like drawing from the popular ether around them. And that was like the argument that Donafeld and, and, and people at uh, what became DC Comics said. It's like, this isn't anything new, kids. You just happen to get there first. And it's true, mm. but, you know... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but they, but they, uh, they were 
pop culture fanatics at the time and and they created an an icon and it's really really interesting and and validating to uh as a nerd to go um yeah your ideas are important um and maybe they're not going to be as original as superman but superman wasn't actually that original <laughs> um it just tapped the, the zeitgeist and this book does a great job of, of resonating that I, I, yeah go ahead oh go, uh, I was gonna no say, you go part of the framing device yes. that i do really like about this is um him waking up on a park bench right homeless yes. and a cop checking in on him and the cop being nice enough to buy him some breakfast mm-hmm. and then the cop being like so what's your story and him right. just being like oh uh, you ever heard of superman and so you're getting a lot of this as a flashback right. and it's the cop kind of taking care of him huh. and then it brings you back closer to the end of his lifespan mm-hmm. with that device um uh but uh, uh schuster was had lost his was losing his sight toward the end of his career as an illustrator um and that was one of the more tragic things is that they had no cushion and the people who uh, owned the who owned the, the his co-creation uh had millions and millions of dollars so i think that's one of the most tragic things is that um is that he i, I think he was he was i don't think he was totally homeless in the you know you they cover that in the notes but yeah, yeah he was he was pretty destitute yeah. um and in the back there they, they they actually have footnotes in the back that kind of clarify well we embellish this here but um anyway i just thoroughly enjoyed this book i uh, i think this is probably one of the better uh reference books for not just superman but the history of dc comics <laughs> All and right. i recommend it Cool, the Joe Schuster story. Thank you, Cole. Well, that is a book report, and that is our show. Coming up is quiz time. But before we go, I want to tell you that the Perfect Bound podcast is brought to you by The Panel Jumper. See everything Cole Hornaday and I do at thepanelgumper.com, as well as Comic Extension here at 319 Northeast 45th Street in beautiful downtown Wallingford, or 24 hours a day, seven days a week at comicsengine.com. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or however you get your podcasts at perfectboundpodcast.com. Send us an email, perfectboundpodcast at gmail.com. And now, friends, get your quiz. That's it's quiz time. And this week, the questions come to us from Mr. Chris Casso. Lay it on us, Chris. Uh, so this is all about Mask of the Phantasm, just, uh, <laughs> because it's a thing we talked about. <laughs> so it's the quiz of the podcast. Um, besi- <laughs> number one, besides being a cinematic continuation of Batman the Animated Series, Batman Mask of the Phantasm also has this distinction of being the first of what? The first of a series of Batman animated movies. First original theatrical film produced by Warner Brothers Animation. Oh, so you were close, but not I get that point. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Number two, the film's plotline was inspired by Mike W. Barr's Batman Year Two comic book story arc, but features an original antagonist, the titular Phantasm, in place of what villain from the comics? (sighs) The the Reaver. The Reaper. Reaper. So close, but not right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I get that point, too. Yeah. <laughs> you both get those, those non-points. <laughs> Number three. Mask of the Phantasm was the only animated Batman film to be given a theatrical release until 2016, when what film came out? Was it The Killing Joke? It is. All right. You're, you're killing this one. I'm Dang. killing that joke. Nice job. All them points. <laughs> Number three. This is a... Except this is a good film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From start to finish, how long did production of Mask of the Phantasm take? Mm. Uh, it was fast. It was fast. I'm, it was yeah, like, I'm going to say it's super fast. Like nine months or something. They were doing the TV no. show at the time. Yeah. So. You say nine months. What do you say? I'll I'll take the under and say six. What do you got? 
I was going to say. I'll say eight. You win then. Oh! oh. <laughs> the film was completed within eight months. Early in production, Warner Brothers decided to release it as a theatrical release rather than straight to video. That, that left less than a year for production time. Jeez. Most take two years from finished story to wow. final release. Due to this decision, the animators went over the scenes in order to accommodate the widescreen theatrical aspect ratio. The studio cooperated well, granting the filmmakers a large amount of creative control and a budget of six million. Whoa. Final question. The soundtrack was composed by Shirley Walker, the main composer for the animated series. Walker cited the score as a favorite among uh, her own compositions. The credits featured the song I Never Even Told You, which was written by Sita Garrett and Glenn Ballard. The performer of the song was a regular on the daytime soap opera General Hospital, as well as being one of the stars in Wayne's World and Wayne's World 2. Who was this actress that I had a major crush on back when uh, I was 10? I think Tia I know Carrera. this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was performed by Tia Carrera, who, if she were president, would be Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> oh! Wayne's World. Hashtag Wayne's World. Party down. <laughs> Excellent. All right. That was great. Thank you, Chris. And thank you for listening. And we will see you next week.